Hi, this is Jack O'Halloran, and you're all about to listen to the All-Star Super Fan Podcast. Going to have a lot of fun. We talk, we talk, we talk Superman, and we know what's happening. We talk, we talk, we talk Superman, and we cover everything. Hello and welcome once again to the All-Star Superfan Podcast, the podcast that delves into any and all things Superman throughout the full 80-year legacy of the Man of Steel. I'm one of your hosts, Rob O'Connor, and I'm joined once again by our Midlands Man of Steel, the one and only Mr. Alan Burke. How are you doing tonight, sir? Hi, Rob. How are you? It's great to be back on the airwaves. Uh, can't wait to, to chat to tonight's another amazing guest I, I i i still can't believe that we have uh, this gentleman joining us here tonight we're, we're both huge fans we've spoken about his work uh plenty of times before and i can't wait to get into it excellent once again we'd like to remind you that you can like us on facebook at all-star superfan you can follow us on instagram at all-star superfan follow us on twitter at all-star super pod uh, get in touch via gmail all-star super pod at gmail dot com let us know your thoughts and feelings on all the exciting topics we discuss on tonight's episode with the absolute living legend mr marv wolfman welcome to the show sir uh thank you uh hope this hope uh i i uh, can answer some questions for you Absolutely, we're, we're we're such huge fans of your work, uh, Marv. Uh, it's just there's so much. Everything from obviously the big one, Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, you're 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 basically the architect behind that whole saga that has changed comic book, the very fabric of comic books over the last forty years. Like everything is the terms pre crisis for the good or the bad. That's the- for the good, for the good. <laughs> okay, uh, and I can accept. yeah. Uh, like the, the the whole term pre-crisis and post-crisis is, is is because of the work that you and George did back in in, in 1985. It's incredible uh, that 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 story on its own, and everything else that you've worked on. I mean, you know, uh, characters that you've created like Deathstroke and Raven and Nova, and it's it's an absolute pantheon of 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 comic book characters. It's incredible. Thank you so much. Uh, Marv, I should mention actually at the moment I'm replaying uh, the video game Batman Arkham Knight, and uh, th- there's a certain mission in that. It's a it's a it's a mission where you're playing in the Batmobile and you're you're shooting down these sort of tanks that are coming at you, and every time you die, Deathstroke turns up and says, "Ha ha, Batman, I've beaten you once again," or something to that effect. So I've begun to really hate Deathstroke as a result of that. <laughs> So uh, I, I just thought I'd mention that it's it's no reflection on you. It's Deathstroke the character, and uh, yeah, he's just made my life a bit of a living hell over the last. I, I, uh, I never said he was a good guy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's incredible. We haven't even in, even mentioned the Teen Titans. The fact that you you've created the Teen Titans, Tim Drake. It's 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 an astounding uh, body of work. Can you tell us about your your earliest memories of 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 Superman from your own from your own life? Yeah, well, it's. It's it's sort of uh, weird because it's based on being totally lazy. Um, I was at a friend's house and we were watching a a, a kid show because this was back in the early 1950s. A kid show called uh, Howdy Doody. Um, oh yeah. Which was a pu- Howdy Doody was a puppet uh, sort of uh, you know the Toy Story characters of uh, they were sort of based on the Howdy Doody cast. Uh, and um, at the end of the show, uh, normally we would uh, change the channel to another kid show called Rudy Kazuti. They had stupid names. I have no, uh, it's not my fault. I, I, I just watch. Um, at any rate, uh, for some reason we didn't get up and this is long before uh, you, you had uh, ways to, you know, remotes to turn it on, to change channels. Those things didn't exist. You had to actually physically get up, you know, and, and ruin the perfect slumber that you were having. Um, at any rate, we didn't get up to change the channel. And the very next show was The Adventures of Superman. Uh, the first run, I never heard of the character. And at the end of the show, uh, which we loved, 
Uh, it said Superman's based on the copyrighted character appearing in uh, Superman and Action Comics Monthly, something like that. Uh, we got up, the two of us got up, walked to the corner where there was a candy store, a uh, newsstand, and uh, bought our first copies of comic books uh, back when they were a dime in the early 50s. And obviously we bought Superman material. And uh, of course, those were the ones we knew uh, from the, having seen the TV show. So that's how it was. And I uh, uh, started to collect all the Superman books. Of course, it wasn't difficult back then. There weren't that many comics. And there were very, very few superhero comics. There was Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. And that was it. Those were the only uh, superhero comics that existed back then. Uh, but, you know, Action Comics was there. And uh, a couple of years later, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane. But again, it was essentially just Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. And that isn't it amazing? We we've we've covered a lot of the George Reeve, uh, the George Reeves shows episodes um, from from the series. We're big fans of the of the of the of the show, um, and isn't it? It's amazing that it, it led to like people of your age at the time to go out and and hunt down the comic books and you know to read I them. I don't think it's a surprise uh, because there were no other superhero shows, and certainly yeah. uh, or uh, on TV, Superman was it. Um, those things never entered our consciousness till we became fans of the show. We didn't know things like that could be even shown because the standard kid show was a puppet show or something of that sort. So you see something that's filled with imagination and you're filled with really nice people, you know, uh, Noel Neal and uh, Jack Larson and, uh, and George Reeves. Um, you just get involved with that stuff and it sort of sucks you into it. Uh, it would be a lot harder today, I think, because there's millions of them. There's uh, these characters are all over the place now. They, they are in every possible place you look. Uh, there's a superhero thing. So maybe a little bit more difficult to find one that you're going to root on. For us, this was something that we didn't even know existed. It was beyond belief because this was the only Think of it well, can I ask, Marv, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of people who grew up with the George Reeves series when it was coming out, they describe it as being very violent and very dark. And like that, those early episodes where they're kind of very noir-esque and like, did, did you feel any of that watching it or was it always this fun, hopeful, bright, kind of fun-filled show? No, not, not even the first season, which was a more realistic handling of the character uh, and the better stories. They got a little goofy. Yeah. As they went on. I like the more realistic stuff, even as a five or six year old, however old I was at the time, uh, eight year old. So it was early 1950, 51, 52, someplace around there, uh, whenever Superman just began. So uh, somebody could look it up, I'm sure. Um, I think it was 1951 was when the Superman and the Mole Man came out. So it was around then, yeah. So and we and I saw Superman and the Mole Man in the theaters. Wow! I went every week to see uh, to see it. So yeah, amazing. Oh, that was Superman serial. I'm sorry. Yeah, but I did see that in the theater too. So would it be fair to say, Marv, that Superman in, in particular has a very special place in your heart? I mean, would he be your favorite of the of uh, would he be your favorite comic book character, seeing as he's the first one that you encountered and the the, the one who got you into the into the into the comics? Yeah, he was the he was my favorite. Uh, he was, of course, the first. But that's not the reason uh, he represented. Uh, true good guy. The comics were all very were clearly aimed at six to eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds uh, back then. Uh, and it was exactly the right time period. And the stories were a little silly, but they were still enjoyable. Oh. Yeah, we 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 only recently reviewed some stories from the from the nineteen fifties on the podcast. And went through some stories like um, Menace from the Stars and, and and stories like that. And yeah, while silly, they're they are a lot of fun. And uh, I I remember remarking to Rob at the time, even now they're perfect to get young kids into reading these comics, you know, and 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 to get them into comic books. But you know, they were silly, but we there was nothing to compare them to because they were it. You know, the Superman and, as I say, Batman, a couple of years later, Batman and Wonder Woman. Um, 
those were the only ones that were out there. So it wasn't like uh, we had something to make sound. We had we had other shows that weren't as silly. They were still the only shows out there, and they were filled with imagination and good people and fun stories. Again, when you're six, seven, eight years old, you, you can accept some of the silly stuff. But the show tended not to get too much into that, certainly the first year, which was a little bit more realistic. Without skipping too far ahead, Marv, do you mind me asking how much of those early kind of impressions of Superman informed the way you wrote him in in later years? Because I can definitely see tendrils of the George Reeves series in some of your early work around the, the 1986 reboot. Um, you, definitely the characterization of Clark yeah. seems informed somewhat by the George Reeves series. I don't know. Can you speak to that at all? Um, I, I'm sure there, I'm sure there is something in it because uh, very often I would specifically want to reflect that. It wasn't an accident in many of those cases. Um, it was something that I thought that would be good in this particular moment. Sometimes I would do something from other things, but in truth, the Superman material that influenced me the most was the first three years of the, of the comic. Uh, okay. Where he was a much more realistic character. He was a little bit more violent. He was, he was, you could accept him uh, because by the time I saw those, I was probably eight or nine years old or 10 years old. And therefore, wanted the more meaty material. Uh, you always have to remember if the thing is aimed at a six-year-old, that's the type of storylines it's going to have. If it's eight years old, that's a little bit different. 14-year-olds mm. is a, a completely different story. That's not to say that the story becomes sillier or bad or whatever. It's just that as we grow, we want our material to grow with us uh, so that it keeps surprising us. If it's just repetition all the time, you get bored by it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, tell me, Marv, just for those who don't know, how did you then um, go from being a fan and reading the books to actually writing the books? Oh, that's a long process. I mean, uh, um, because I got involved with comics and I I really love the comics, uh, I wrote letters to the comics. Okay. And I wrote a letter uh, to um, Mystery in Space because Adam Strange was one of my favorite characters at the time. And uh, Julie Schwartz published, he's the editor, uh, he was the editor of Mystery in Space. He published the letter and Julie tended to um, put the address of uh, uh, of the uh, whoever wrote the letter with, with the letter because Julie came from a science fiction fandom. And he was trying to create a fandom for comics as well. So what happened was about a week after the comic came out with my uh, letter and my address, I actually got two fanzines sent to me that, that I didn't even know fandom existed. You know, you only know what is around you unless until somebody tells you there's something else. Uh, and what happened there was two fanzines came in the mail and uh, one of them was an advertising uh, um, fanzine and I would buy, find other fanzines and you started to learn about comics fandom, which you never do, as I say, if you won't look around your house, you can't possibly know about that sort of stuff because I was one of the few people at that particular time who lived in New York and was able to go on the DC tour I went, um, this is obviously a couple of years later. Um, I, and they had tours of the office every, every week. Uh, I think sometimes once a week, sometimes twice a week, I forget. Uh, but um, I would go on the tour and then I'd report the news that I learned in the fanzines. And with time I started to go, I could write, the, I could write uh, for one of the fanzines that was uh, fiction, had fic- a little comic stories. I could do that. So I started to write for the fanzines and I started to publish my own fanzines. And one of the editors at DC, because I had a, a horror fanzine as well as a comedy fanzine and as well as a superhero fanzine. Um, Joe Orlando was the editor at DC for House of Mystery and other mystery comics at DC. 
uh, sort because I mailed uh, copies of the, my fanzines to all the editors. Uh, very clearly was deser- was interested in breaking into the business since I was writing and even drawing my own stories. And uh, he asked if I'd be interested in trying a mystery story. And I did. And they bought it. And, um, you know, within a couple of years, uh, you get asked, uh, once you start developing your talent a little bit more, you get asked to try other stuff. And I did a Tales of Krypton, I think, for Walt Weisinger. And um, uh, that led to the next thing, led to the next thing. I went to Marvel at that point. And when I came back to DC a couple of years later, uh, I got on the Superman book because I'd already, I'd been writing Spider-Man and Tomb of Dracula and Fantastic Four for DC, for Marvel. So they knew that I could do the stuff for DC. Plus I had done Superman before and I really lobbied to, uh, to get onto it. Can I ask, can I ask Marv, is it true, and apologies, I'm sure a lot of people ask you this question. Is it true that you had to prove that your name was actually Marv Wolfman because of the comics code, or is that an urban legend? And I, I, they had to, I didn't have to prove it because the editors knew me, uh, but yes, the comics code needed to know it because they did not do, they did not allow werewolves and vampires and such like that until the days of Tomb of Dracula, years later when, they, when those rules changed. But Previously on a, in fact, I have it right here next to me, uh, is the page which has my, uh, the original art for the page that has my very first story for House of Secrets, uh, that particular one for. And was it, it must have been very surreal then going from kind of Superman being your first book to actually writing on a Superman book. That must have been a very surreal experience. Well, as I say, uh, I had done some Superman stuff, but not too much. Uh, sort of, I uh, related material. I had written Supergirl, uh, which was in Venture Comics, and I did some others as well. Plus, by that point, I, I had written Spider Man and Fantastic Four, so it wasn't surreal. Uh, it was more like I know how to make this work, and I'm going to make it work. So it was more about something to prove than. Um, being in that, oh my God, I'm writing the book that I always wanted to. Uh, I always felt I should. Therefore, I did. Finally. And at say at this point, is it? Would it be? I would. I would imagine. And maybe I'm wrong. Would it be Crisis on Infinite Earths that is is the is the work that's most often asked about and most often kind of brought up to you when when people speak to you now, or is it is it a wide range of of characters and 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 books that you've worked on? It depends on how old the person is. If they're if they're older, it's Tomb of Dracula, Spider Man, and Daredevil, Fantastic Four. Uh, the certainly with Tomb of Dracula, that would be the older audience, and they'd ask me questions about that. Uh, others would ask me about Titans, of course, uh, and um, everyone asks about Crisis in one form or another. Uh, but it's. It really depends upon how old the, uh, the people are. Crisis skews differently because it's constantly being reprinted so new people would see it. And they've heard so much about it, they want to buy the reprint to get to see what the story is all about. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the the reason, the primary reason we asked you to, or advised you to come on the podcast, Marv, was to talk about something that is almost like a hidden gem in the in the pantheon of superman lore something that a lot of people are are kind of only rediscovering we've noticed lately again um and that is the the ruby spears superman animated uh show that you did back in the late 80s um it ran for 13 episodes from september 17th to december 10th 1988 um and you worked on it writers like yourself and marty pasco and michael reeves and and buzz dixon and cherry wilkerson all working on that show um how did that come about? It's, it's really the stupidest way of getting a job ever. Um, I had written a friend of mine who was the story editor showrunner for a show called Cabbage Patch Kids based on those ugly cards. Uh, um, knew that I wrote the Superman comic. Uh, and they wanted, there was a Cabbage Patch Kid call, uh, card called Super Nerd. And they wanted an episode 
using that. And he thought it would be funny that since I wrote the actual Superman comic here, I'm writing sort of a parody comic. Anyway, um, the head of CBS Children's, um, forgetting her name at the moment, I'm sorry about that, um, uh, saw the Cabbage Patch story I wrote, really liked it. And based on the parody, they got in touch with me to actually write the Superman show. They had no idea that I ever did the Superman comic. They didn't know that I wrote comics. Uh, they, they, they simply um, and they really liked it. Um, I, of course, assumed they knew that I wrote comics, so I never brought it up. Uh, I thought that's why they came for me, so why, why in the world would I have to tell them that? Anyway, uh, they, when they found out that um, after a while, and they really liked what I did, uh, but they found out what I, uh, that I had worked for DC, got the clear impression they never would have hired me if they knew that. Uh, because they, the, the thinking was, I'm sure, that I would owe too much to the DC approach to Superman, and they wanted a Superman a certain way. Of course, for me, I've written Superman five different ways, depending upon who the editor is, depending upon what where the character was at that particular time, depending upon the audience animation. Of course, I'm going to write it the way that the animators want, um, the network wants it to be written. Um, or would accept being written, uh, but if they if they knew that I did comics, I wouldn't have even been able. I'm sure I would not have been able to show them that I could write it exactly the way they were looking for. Uh, and that that's incredible because I I was about to say how um, ahead of its time it was to have people like yourself from the comic background no, no, writing on the show and working on the show. They didn't want to work with us because they assumed first of all we were comic book writers we wouldn't know how to write animation. So it was very good for me that they only knew me as an animation writer. Um, yeah, and that enabled me to get the uh, to get the series. And can I ask Marv, the, the very first thing you notice when you watch the Ruby Spears Superman cartoon is that there seems to be a very tangible link to uh, the Richard Donner films. Like you notice it with the, the John Williams theme is literally there in, in the opening sequence. Now it's only a little snippet of it and then it kind of segues into its own theme. But even the, the, the style of the music throughout sounds very much like John Williams. And even the style, the storytelling style seems like it could be following on from those movies. Was that something that you had in mind or was that a network thing? Was that a creative thing? Where did that kind of... I was trying to combine the var various Supermans. Um, so there was a lot from there. There was certainly a lot from the Fleischer cartoons. If, if I could have, uh, and we couldn't because the Flash cartoons were so expensive to make, we would have done it like them. Uh, later on, they were able to do that with Batman and stuff. But at this particular point, uh, it was a very different order. It was a very different people in control. Uh, but what I wanted to do was combine various Supermans and make it something for, that was a blend, a really solid blend of all of it. And uh, try and get a strong Superman out of that. It's 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 so, sorry to interrupt, but it's interesting you mentioned the Fleischer cartoons, Marv. The, one of the episodes I watched actually last night, uh, I, I think it was the the, uh, the the one where they're in the Great Wall of China and something is collapsing on Superman and he holds up his cape like this. And if I'm not mistaken, it's an it's a it's it's a direct homage to uh, the mechanical monsters. He does something similar. He holds up his cape to prevent the volcano ash falling on him or something like that. Mechanical monsters, uh, there were a number of them that we used, uh, little things because that would not be spotted by anybody except a true fan. And it didn't hurt any material. It didn't hurt doing it. The people at CBS had no idea that it was an homage. But uh, so it worked on its own level. But by doing that, all the fans go, okay, they know what Superman's about. Yeah. They know what Superman is. They know all about Superman. And I think that a lot of people who have seen the cartoon show are surprised at what we were able to do long before 
the freedom in animation uh, occurred, uh, which started with the Transformers and G.I. Joe and those, uh, those series. Of course, those were not networks, those were syndicated. And uh, consequently, they didn't have to worry about network interference or anything. Uh, the one thing about that first pilot one, which I always find, I mean, was obviously after mechanical monsters with the giant robot and all of that stuff, a totally different story, but just influenced in, in terms of things is uh, standard and practices, which is the censoring group. Yeah. Um, we had a, a fight between Superman and the robot and Superman beats up the robot. And we were told we can't have Superman throw a punch. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Not against, and I kept going, it's a robot. It's, Superman is hitting a can opener. You know, they're not real, they're not people, and they didn't care. So if you notice what we do is Superman lands on the back of a robot, reprograms it. He pulls off the, uh, the little box that covers it up, uh, the controls, and changes it. And the two robots start to hit each other. That's okay. But Superman couldn't do it. Um, That's so funny because when you hear the, the, the later shows, Batman the Animated Series and Superman the Animated Series, they, they literally wrote a robot villain into Batman called Hardak, specifically so that they could show robots having gruesome deaths and being killed. Everybody, uh, the world changed with, uh, um, as I say, Transformers and G.I. Joe. Uh, that allowed a whole different type of storytelling to to occur, we had to be aimed at the youngest possible audience and we could not do any violence. So everything had to be, my goal was to, as the story editor for the series was to find new things we can do that was so Superman centric that did not have, require him having to throw a punch. And you, you you employed a great um, voice cast with uh, Bo Weaver as Clark Kent and Superman, and you know Alan Oppenheimer, Skeletor himself was Jonathan Kent, and Michael Bell as Lex Luthor, and and the voice director herself, um, uh, Ginny McSwain, Ginny McSwain, um, playing Lois Lane herself, uh, yeah, a fantastic voice cast in, in the show. I wish I could claim any any uh, involvement with that, but that went through the production department and they had their own voice people. I agreed with all of them. I thought it was well done. Um, and they weren't, the voices were not silly. Mm. They were not trying to be silly. Uh, not even Luther, who was sort of sort of based a little bit on the uh, super, uh, Luther from Superman uh, with Gene Hackman. Yes. Uh, more as well as being based on my remake of uh, Luther into a businessman. You're when speaking to you, Marv, when you when you when you turn around and, and say, you know, my remake of Lex Luthor into a businessman, you know, the fact that you're involved in that is incredible. Well, it took me a while to get that sold. So <laughs> I, I'm very proud of it because I had pitched it several years earlier uh, when we did the remake of um, uh, of Luther and Brainiac. Uh, I pitched on both. You know, I pitched ideas on both. They didn't want the same writer on both. And I understood that because that would have been a slap at uh, Carrie Bates, who was writing Superman for more years than I could remember and is a damn good writer. Uh, so he got to redo Superman and I got to re I mean, he got to redo Luther and I got to redo uh, Brainiac, which I was thrilled by because I got the Brainiac exactly that I wanted. And years later, we were because we never did it, when we revamped Superman completely, I was able to again uh, push uh, that version of, of Luther. And that time we got it through. Where did that idea come from, Marv, to, to do that? Where, was that just based on the 80s and kind of Reaganomics and that kind of stuff? No, uh, it was based on the fact that as I was growing up and re every issue of Superman, it seemed, had a story with Luther in it, because they always had three stories per episode, per comic uh, in the early days, uh, in the 50s and early 60s. And it would always begin with Luther in prison, and then somehow he had something in his teeth or hidden away in his something, and 
you would suddenly have a giant robot and I'm going, oh my God, you know, if I could build a giant robot, I don't need to steal anything. I could sell that. That equipment, I'd make more money legally. I thought it was the stupidest idea. The other thing was, I honestly didn't think Luther should be a physical villain. Uh, wearing the superhero, super villain costume that he wore, that green and magenta, whatever color it was, um, it made him a, it made him yet another character who's going to punch Superman. Once you get into uh, an action thing like that, uh, there's no way you can win. Luther's superpower is he's the smartest man on earth. He can out. Superman didn't have to develop his brains. He could punch his way through a mountain. He's not as smart as Luther. He's he's a, a totally good person, but he's not a scientist. He's not any of these things. He's not as he's as I say. He's not as smart as Luther. So, to me, the the emphasis on Luther had to be using his brains. And once he does that, it has to be. He is so smart. He can make certain that Superman can never figure out how to pin anything on him. He could do everything he wants, and Superman would be flummoxed. He just could not figure out how to prove that he is, um, that Luther is the criminal that you know he is. That's how smart Luther is. And I thought that made a far more interesting villain than yet another guy who's trying to punch him. Yeah, and that's that's. That's what led to, to uh, um, both our favorite uh, Lex Luthor's as John Shea and Lois and Clark, which is exactly what that, that, that version of the character turned out to be, that business magnate, um, you know, sinister, evil. I, I, I was going to ask you, Mark, because you, you were instrumental, as you say, in the characterization of the, the revamped Lex Luthor, who, who is now, one would argue, the more iconic version of Lex Luthor is the, the successful businessman. And in those earlier issues, the very early issues of the, the Man of Steel reboot by John Byrne, and then the issues that you wrote straight after that, he is, he's just that little bit more buffoonish. He's a little bit more kind of playful, a bit silly. I think Lois Lane um, compares him to Fred Hertz or something like that in one of the early issues because he's losing his hair. And obviously the Gene Hackman, you mentioned the Gene Hackman movie, do you consider Lex to be slightly more of a goofy kind of a buffoonish character or do you see him more as the suave businessman that he sort of became later on? Alan mentioned John Shea, the kind of more erudite kind of upstanding. Well, where do you land in terms of where Lex should be characterized? Uh, Lex is not a buffoon. He's incredibly intelligent. Uh, if he does a buffoonish thing, it's because he's trying to create a character for somebody else, not for him. Um, I didn't write those early John Byrne issues, obviously. Uh, and he and I always disagreed on what, on Superman and Luther. Uh, but um, he got to, because of the way we divided the uh, books up, he got to develop the character using what was there, using what I had come up with. But um, I didn't always agree with it. I'm sure he certainly didn't always agree with what I did. So that's okay. Um, but to me, it's a character who is very realistic. He knows how good he is. I did a, published last year, though it came out, uh, though I wrote it years before, is a book called Man and Superman. And that, that to me has a perfect, uh, uh, showing of what Luther is. Uh, and I don't even use him all that much in the book. He's only on a few pages. But you can understand what he's about in my mind. Again, very realistic. I thought the uh, episode of Supergirl that John Cryer, the first one, was very real. And he spoke softly because he didn't have to raise his voice. He wasn't a, he wasn't a mustache twirling villain. He is totally in charge of what he's doing. And I thought um, John Cryer did a great job with that. And just to get back um, to the to the Ruby Spears show, um, Marv, what I really love about it, watching it, re I rewatched just the entirety of it there recently. And um, 
having not seen it in, in, in a good few years. And what I really love about it is there, there, you seem to have achieved, everybody who worked on it seems to have achieved this perfect balance. It, it's not cheesy like the Super Friends cartoon. Um, it's not as kind of, it doesn't take itself as seriously as what would follow with Superman, the animated series. It's a very charming show. And I was just wondering, how different is it writing for an animated series as opposed to comics, you know, to get that kind of balance right? You know, it, it's what you feel you can do with the series. Uh, when I was writing Superman with Julie Schwartz, I knew what Julie liked. I knew the type of stories he preferred, and I catered all my plots to that. Uh, when I worked with uh, Ruby Spears, I knew what they needed. I knew what CBS wanted for Superman. They wanted it very young. They wanted, but I wanted a certain amount of uh, gravitas to it. I wanted some real. It, it, despite the silliness of doing certain things for the little kids who were going to watch it, because it was on at seven thirty in the morning in in um, in the U.S., uh, which meant only young kids were seeing it. Um, you know, there's no difference in my mind. You're still writing stories. You still have to have characters. You still have to have good plots. They have to have all of that. You just <clears throat> You're just catering it. You're writing for a, a specific audience to understand what that's about. And we tried to be realistic as we could within all the parameters so that the older fans would actually enjoy it as well. And we discovered that that did happen. Uh, 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 most of the mail that we got was from uh, older fans who really appreciated the blend of Superman that I was trying to do. I have to say, Marv, I watched, I, I mentioned the Great Wall of China episode. There's a moment in that where there's, uh, the, the Superman realizes that character, the people are being turned into stone. So he capitalizes on this by making a stone carving of Clark Kent and bringing it to the other characters and going, hey gang, look, Clark has been turned into stone and it creates this perfect diversion so that everybody thinks Clark has been dispatched. So it explains how, you know, I just thought that was so clever. I'm 32 and I was like, that is great. I love that. I don't remember that. The only thing I remember, uh, well, we got a note from CBS that said, because uh, Luther buys the Great Wall of China in that uh, that said, originally that was not it. Originally the idea was that, he, that the Chinese government brought him in to repair the Great Wall of China, one of his, um, because he wanted to dig underground to do, he wanted to go under it. So he was going to get that done. They said, no, Luther has to buy the Great Wall of China. And I'm going, the Great Wall of China is not for sale. They're not going to sell it. They and CBS said they don't. They were adamant he has to buy the Great Wall of China. Uh, I literally spent several days trying to figure out how to handle this because I'm going to rewrite. I had to rewrite that whole section, and finally it hit me. And uh, he's with his uh, his silly girlfriend, uh, Miss Morganberry, uh, um, who's half named after my daughter. Her middle name is Morgan, um, but uh, he mentions that he's buying. And she says to him, uh, "But Lexi, uh, the Great Wall of China isn't for sale. Uh, you can't buy it." And he just looks at her and says, "For the right price, you can buy anything." And just ignored the whole concept of reality or whatever. People accepted that. That was just, oh my God, how do I deal with uh, this thing? You can't do it. So you have to. You have to dig into it. You have to sort of use that. And by turning it into a joke, you real the, the average fan will go, oh, Luther's not going to explain this to her. Uh, one of our favorite episodes, um, both mine and Rob's, one of our favorite episodes is uh, Cybron Strikes. Um, uh, it, it's a great episode where this um, cyborg from the future comes back and then kind of turns Lois and Jimmy into kind of zombie uh cyborgs and it's 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 just I a great episode any of this. <laughs> <laughs> well the, the, that'll probably preempt my question because I, I was about to ask was there any particular reason that you used the uh, the cybron instead of brainiac <laughs> but <laughs> if you don't remember maybe not 
No, I'm sorry. I, I don't remember at all. Uh, I haven't seen the episodes in a long, long time. Uh, do you know who wrote that particular one? Off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Was it Marty Pasco, maybe? I mean, Marty wrote, a, Marty wrote several, Steve Gerber wrote several, and some of the uh, Ruby Spears animation guys wrote several. It, it definitely, the character feels like he may have originally been envisioned as a Brainiac story and then it was changed later on. So I don't know, was there any kind of... Must have been a reason. I just don't recall what it is. I'm sorry. Because you you have you have the you have the appearances of 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 great characters like 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 big characters like Zod and Ursa turn up um, you know different versions than the than the film versions obviously and that turn up in the show. But I was just wondering, do, do you think that the fact that the that the show was launched so early into the post crisis era that there was a shortage of kind of reference material, or were you happy to kind of dive into the Silver Age? as much as you needed to, to, to kind of, for story ideas? Were you- no, I, I didn't have any restraints outside of aiming it for the audience that I knew that they would accept. Because uh, every, uh, every script, every plot and every script had to go through uh, the approval process. So it wasn't like, uh, I think a lot of fans who, and there's no reason they should know how animation works in any fashion or, or TV or anything else, but I'm sure they think, once you've been hired, you're free to do anything you want. And no, every plot, every script, everything of that sort has to be approved step by step. And it's a long process. Uh, and that's why you learn fairly quickly what's an acceptable thing or not. I don't know why uh, we use Cybron instead of Brainiac, but there must have been a reason back then. Can I, can I ask as well, Marv, I, I, I think Alan mentioned uh, Super Friends earlier on. That, that was on for around nine years, I think. Uh, and, it, you know, it's an iconic cartoon. Um, but but Ruby Spears then is a very different company. What was Super Friends on your mind? Was was there anything that you wanted to approach in this com- in this cartoon that was different from the way they went about it? What, were, were you trying to make this different from Super Friends in any way? Of course. Uh, first off, uh, I was, because of my age, I was too old for Super Friends. I really didn't like that show at all. Uh, there was nothing in it I liked because it was all in for the younger kids. So that it's fine to produce it and to do it, but I, it's not something I felt like watching. So there's no way I, that I would be doing anything that reflected on that except by accident. Um, nobody asked me to copy them. Nobody asked me to do anything. I just try to do solid Superman stories for that audience. Can you explain for those who wouldn't know Marv, what, what, what exactly does a head story editor do? It's different for every, every show, every, every company, everything like that. In my case, I hired the writers. I work with them on developing the stories in detail. Um, okay. Uh, you know, oversaw every step of it, uh, rewrote the scripts if necessary, because, uh, I didn't believe I need. I should give back all the scripts to the uh, to the writers. Uh, they already yeah. did their job. Now it's up to me to make it approved by the network. If the network had a problem with something, and I approved it, that's fine. I'll rewrite it. Um, but I, you know, I never take any credit for any of that stuff, as most story editors don't, because that's our job. Yeah, is to make take the script that the writer gives and make sure that it's a, it's a script that would be approved by everyone down the line. The Ruby Spears guys, the CBS guys, et cetera, et cetera. So. One of the things that the that this particular show um, is kind of remembered for fondly is the little after segments at the end I of the episodes. That. I love the, that. The, and everybody, everybody remembers the show. Everybody who's seen it remembers it for those after segments. Everybody has a fondness for those segments where, you know, Clark is a toddler, Clark is a baby, uh, Clark is a teenager. This, there's such a charm to those family album segments um, that have really lasted the test of time. Since I've, uh, since I've said bad things about CBS, uh, let me say that was their idea. And I thought, I thought it was a lovely idea. Uh, I would have loved to have done more of those. Um, and I love writing the first one. They, they managed to get to storyboard uh, that 
my, that script a Disney artist who gave it the same quality in storytelling that they gave at Disney. Uh, so we we lucked out with that so so much because he understood how to milk emotions and he really did a beautiful job with it. And uh, I, one thing I noticed that the very first one, Marv, which I think you mentioned you wrote, yeah, the, it 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 opens at an orphanage where Jonathan and Martha are, you know, dropping Clark off, and then they right. later come back and and th- there's a picture of the orphanage, and if I'm not mistaken, that's an ex- that's a direct homage again to the first Fleischer cartoon where Superman is dropped off at an orphanage. Am I right in saying that? Or do it's you very possible it was uh, again that's in production. Uh, yeah. So I'd see all the storyboards. Um, the production handled that. I, I didn't. Uh, uh, we may have given them some inf- uh, the the footage. Uh, so one of the guys in production may have known about that. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's very possible it is, but I couldn't tell you for sure. And overall, looking back, Marv, were you and even at the time, were you happy with the with the finished product? Is is there anything that you weren't happy with about how it turned out? The, the the show as a whole I was very happy with what we were able to do yeah. I thought that we pushed the limits of what uh, CBS or any network TV uh, was allowed to do back then um, and I think we did some good stories yeah there's always the silly stuff uh, there was a baseball thing that um, was the dumbest idea in the world but that was pitched to us um, by the network. So we had to use it, but they, their view was that uh, Superman should be, I'm trying to remember, um, Superman, Superman uh, should have on his team uh, all these robots and stuff, and they were against normal humans, and I'm going... That's ridiculous uh, because Superman could easily beat them. The robot should be on the other side against him, you know, but we did what we did. Uh, so there are a couple of those, but for the most part, I am exceedingly happy with it. We were pretty much left alone, uh, certainly in the second half of the season. Um, and why why do you think it was cancelled after the first season? Because it, geez, it would have been great to have gotten multiple seasons of the show and and see like I love the the Wonder Woman episode that you wrote. I love it. It's it, it's done very well. I would have loved to have seen other DC characters maybe make the odd appearance, Green Lantern or the Flash or or even even the Dark Knight, um, as he so often does, kind of encroach on Superman's territory. Um, but why why do you think that never came about? Well. First of all, the show was originally written to be on at 10, which uh, because it was an older show. Uh, I, I wrote that first pilot, the one that they loved, uh, yeah. as an older, slightly older show. And uh, the people at CBS w- did not really want to do a superhero show. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they, were, they were instructed to in many ways. And I think they put it on at 7.30 in the morning because they just wanted to bury it. Uh, I don't think there was... Yeah, we could have done the greatest show in the history of mankind, and I don't think it would have been renewed. And the ratings, therefore, weren't that good uh, because the people who were up at 7.30, for, which are little kids would not have understood all the stuff that we were doing. We tried to write for them as well, but again, we thought originally it was gonna be a 10 o'clock show. And um, when, uh, sorry to interrupt, but when Superman the Animated Series came along a number of years later, uh, I, I think it went for around 70 or 80 episodes. Was there a feeling of, oh, that could have been us on any level, do you think? Oh, I would have loved to have had that freedom of having Warners themselves produce it because they would have only cared about the quality of the show as, as shown later. Um, and sadly, I never got a chance to write any for them. And it, the only thing is, it, it, it is remarkable how all these years later, I mean, you're talking 35 years later, um, I've seen it mentioned so often lately on 
um, YouTube videos, people discovering it, fans have discovered it. We've spoken to other podcasters about it um, and their our love for it. It's it's it really has endured and, and it really has a, a, a people have real fondness um, for the show. Um, and it would have it would have been amazing to to have seen to have seen another series of it. It's such a pity that it didn't it didn't continue on. Um, what do you think the legacy of the series is, Marv? Do you think that's what it is? Just that fans remember it so fondly. I I, I really don't know. I think you know we were as honest to Superman and the, and the concepts behind Superman as we could be. Uh, again, meant for that audience. Um, you know, as I've, as I've said, I've written Superman in many different styles. Uh, you could look at the run I did with Julie Schwartz. You could look at the run I did with uh, Andy Helfer and, and Mike Collin. And you could look at uh, what I did on my own uh, with Man and Superman and stuff of that sort. So I don't know how other people perceive the, book, the material. Uh, obviously, if they're coming up to me at a convention, they're only coming up because they liked it. Nobody comes up to say, "I hate you. You destroyed Superman." You know? Just, just before we before we finish up, Marv, I was just wondering, what is your your take now on on say the current state of Superman in in comics and live action? Are you a fan of what's happening at the moment, or is it not really for you, or just just your general opinion on where Superman stands in in twenty twenty two? I think the Superman and Lois show is good. I think it's the best of those, the Arrowverse stuff. Uh, it's it's really well done. Um, I thought uh, there were episodes uh, where Superman appeared on Lois that were really good. I thought there were some that were uh, a little bit off, but for the most part, I thought they were good. The show itself, though, was really good. Uh, I don't read the comics, so I have no idea what's going on in them. Um, and the live action, uh, it's a different approach. It's not the Superman. It's not my desire, uh, not my approach to Superman, but obviously it's a very popular one because it made a ton of money, but it's just not my style of Superman. That This is the, the current movie Superman. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Essentially, I mean, I like uh, so much about them because the people are, are really good with it. I, I think Superman comes off good, but he's a little darker than I like to have Superman. And that's not a put down of them. That's the audience they're reaching. Uh, and my version was probably better for the comics um, and wouldn't wouldn't do as well in the theaters because it wouldn't be as angsty. And I think people actually need that sort of drama that is not the approach that I would take. And 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 just before we go as well, the, the approach, speaking of the approach you would take, you, you mentioned man and Superman uh, earlier yeah. in the show. Uh, I, I read it, uh, I think it was, when I read it the day it came out actually, which is two years ago, but I, I believe it, it had been written a while before that. Um, well, 10 years before. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the, 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 the story and the gestation of it? It, um, I was at a, I was speaking with Dan Dio, who was the publisher and the president at the time at DC, and he mentioned to me they were going to start a comic called Superman Confidential, uh, which is stories taking place at different points in his life that haven't really been explored to a lot of detail. And would I be interested? And I said, and what time period would I like the story set in? Well, I knew. The, the exact one I wanted, I wanted him, I wanted a story where he's coming to Metropolis for the very first time and we deal with him as a real kid, as a real person. He's probably about 22. Uh, he's lived his entire life in a small town where everybody knows everybody else. Um, and it's a quiet town. And it's a loving one, and he's he's surrounded by people who have known him since he was a baby. Uh, and now he's coming to a city that couldn't care less that he existed. He wants a job in the Daily Planet, and I, it always used to bother me that he got it. Yeah. No, no, I mean you don't go from writing uh, for the school newspaper to the Daily Planet. It just doesn't happen. Um, and um, what I wanted was him to, because it's his first time out 
his first time away from his parents, first time away from any anything he knew, to suddenly have to deal with the world that everybody has to. When you move out from your parents' home for the very first time, you got to get a job, you got to get an apartment, you got to get all these things. He doesn't know how to do that. Why should he know? Just the fact that he could lift a tractor with one finger doesn't mean that he should know how to get a job. It's such a great perspective. It, it's it's one that had never been explored. And my feeling was that he he's going to make a lot of mistakes, but they're not mistakes of life and death. They're mistakes that any human being reaching that age who has to now go on and live on their own is going to have to face. And that makes Superman the man part of Superman, more important than the super part. He knows how to do that stuff. That's not a problem. Yeah. But even there, he falls up because he does a couple of things that he shouldn't have done. He shouldn't have used his x-ray vision to check something because that wiped out all uh, the information he was going for. He shouldn't be doing this because there are ramifications to everything you do and you have to learn how to do it or how how what you do affects everything else. And so I had a great talk with it. And is that is that one of your favorite Superman works that you you that you've done yourself, Murph? I think it 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 answered an awful lot of questions about who Superman is that nobody else bothered to ask that question. Can I can I yeah. ask Marv? Uh, I think Alan mentioned it earlier. How familiar are you with the Lois and Clark show from the 90s? Were you a fan of that when it was on? Just because a lot of what you've said reminds me of that show and because they tried to tackle some of that as well on that. I just wanted to... Yeah, no, I liked it. Uh, One of the things I try to do when I'm looking at a movie or TV is I don't try to put everything I know about the character because they have to develop their own story the same way I did with Man and Superman. Nobody's ever done that story before, and therefore I had to come up with it. They have to do the same sort of thing. So I look at it just as them, as its own entity. Does it work within the parameters they are setting up? And Lowe's and Clark definitely work within the parameters that uh, the original story editors came up with for that show. And I liked it. Um- just before we finish up, Marv, um, I was just wondering, is there anything that you'd like to promote while, while we have you on? Anything come up? And it doesn't have to be Superman related. Anything at all or any appearances? No, most of the stuff I'm doing right now is behind the scenes stuff. So I'm writing like, uh, which I have for a while, video games and some other stuff as well. Uh, but you'll probably never see it because I'm writing it for the DC um, uh, merchandising department or something of that sort which I prefer doing because they all want the classic characters rather than the current. And I don't follow all the books anymore. So I don't know the current stuff, but I certainly know the other stuff. So it's on the subject, on the subject of video games, uh, Marv, you wrote the Superman returns uh, video game in 2006. Uh, 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 Flint Dilly, who's a um, really well-known and very, uh, um, has been writing video games for forever, uh, brought me in as the Superman guy and he was going to handle the uh, video game, but I, I turned out because of what his commitments, he taught me how to write video games and so that I could take a lot of that work off of his shoulders. And it really was a great learning process. And I thank Flint because I've written at least a dozen video games since and all on my own. And if it hadn't been for him, I wouldn't have known how. Because they are complicated. We covered that in a previous episode. So thank you for your work on that. (laughs) So Marv, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure and a privilege having you on the the podcast uh, today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We're we're such huge fans of your entire body of work, everything you've done, um, the, the character creations, Crisis, Man and Superman, your television work. Um, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much. Appreciate um, And for everybody who's listening, um, please reach out, get in touch. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at All Star Superfan and on Twitter at All Star Superpod. You can also contact us with your thoughts and opinions by emailing allstarsuperfan at gmail.com and being with a chance of having your email read live on air. Um, thank you so much again for, for joining us, Marv. Rob, is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish up? 
No, very well said. Uh, Marv, it has been a pleasure and an honor. Uh, we've been reading your comics for so, so many years. You guys take care. And this was fun. Thank you. So everybody take care, stay safe, stay super. Bye-bye.